Good morning. Good to see you all. You can turn in your scriptures uh, to Zechariah 3. We're in a series called Let Your Hands Be Strong, and it's spiritual encouragement from the prophets uh, Haggai and Zechariah. They ministered to the people of Israel after they returned from exile. Zechariah 3. Well, every generation has a great breakup song, right? Gen Z has Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo. Millennials have a few. We, will never, we are never getting back together, as well as every other song by Taylor Swift. Now, my generation, Gen X, has Everybody Hurts by R.E.M., but I think maybe the boomers take the prize with you've lost that loving feeling by the Righteous Brothers. I think they really capture the pathos of a breakup in these words. Now there's no welcome look in your eyes when I reach for you. And now you're starting to criticize little things I do. It makes me just feel like crying because baby, something beautiful's dying. You've lost that loving feeling, and it's gone, gone, gone. You know, there's something about a breakup, isn't there, that leads to so many songs. It's so painful. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a romance. It could be a friendship. Breakups of friendships are, are painful. You get let go from your job. That's pretty painful. An employer lets you go. It could be a business partnership. Worked for a long time. It's not working anymore. Kind of painful to... To break up from that as well. And, and one reason is that they were close enough to see your faults. And eventually, you can just tell that the welcome look in their eyes isn't there when you reach for them. Right? When you turn to that person, the welcome look in their eyes and that sense of warmth isn't there anymore. It's faded. The loving feeling is faded. And now the relationship is faded. And this is going to change your life. Now, the prophet Zechariah describes what should have been a pretty epic, we call a spiritual breakup between God and one of God's chosen servants, and really the nation who Joshua represented. Zechariah kind of steps in on Joshua the high priest's sort of worst nightmare breakup moment, where Joshua the high priest is exposed before not only his colleagues, but also before a whole company of angels and before the Lord himself as a massive failure. He should have been disgraced. He should have been rejected and discarded. But what happens instead is really good news for anyone who has been criticized, cast aside, not picked, picked apart, or otherwise seen a beautiful relationship die. And we can just see that verse 1 is going to set the scene for us here. Verse 1, uh, Zechariah 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now here Joshua has entered the presence of the Lord as part of his job. As a high priest, he has to come into God's presence, into the temple, and make atonement for the rest of the people. This is, a, this is a dangerous part of Joshua the high priest's job. It's like when someone's fixing 
a telephone line or an electric current where they're doing their job, but it's also putting them in danger. So he's already in danger. His best hope was to just carry out his ministry, finish the job and go about um, his way. But in this moment of vulnerability, the accuser springs an attack on him. He's ready to go as soon as Joshua steps into God's presence. And the accuser here is Satan, a spiritual creature who works tirelessly to bring down God's people at any given moment. He will accuse them of legitimate offenses. He will accuse them of not legitimate offenses. He brings confusion, lies, and accusation wherever he goes. He's also very legalistic, this accuser. He knows God's laws inside and out. And he knows that, at least in some ways, Joshua the high priest has broken some of these laws. And certainly the people Joshua represents, the people of Israel, have broken all kinds of laws. They've pretty much broken the covenant itself. And so Satan knows that Joshua's failure and Israel's failure was, was even deeper than, than performance. It was a failure to love well. It was a spiritual failure. It was a failure to be faithful to their promises. So it's one thing to, to like miss your sales numbers, right? Or your, or your free throws. It's totally something else to be called a bad friend or a traitor or an apostate. So it's, it's one thing to be turned down for a second date or a second interview. It's totally another thing to disappoint the people who already trust you and love you. It's one thing to break a contract with a cell phone provider or a landlord. It's quite another to break a covenant, a covenant of love and sacred trust with a God who chose you. Joshua had failed. Israel had failed. And so we find Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Now, undoubtedly, this is not Satan's first involvement in the process. We can expect that he's been plotting for this moment painstakingly enticing Israel into unfaithfulness, enticing them. Hey, you guys should just live like pagans. Hey, you guys should just trust Egypt. You guys should just come along. It's going to be easier. You can't really trust God. Did God really say, come along with me? I'll show you a better way. And they did. They followed him. They trusted him. He was the seducer before he was the, the accuser. And so all the while, the seducer slash accuser is writing down all of the little offenses and he's preparing for this moment. And, oh, I can't wait for the day when I've got Joshua over a barrel and I've got my list and now he's got his list and now he's going to seal the deal and now he's going to break the covenant. And now he's going to, to stage the, the, the best breakup he could ever imagine. This so-called high priest of yours has broken the law of God. And he's done it every day of his life. I have a rap sheet a mile long to show you how disqualified this man is for his job, for his service. He stands condemned in your sight. Not to mention him, all the people that he represents, that he dares represents before you. You would forgive their sin. They've defiled themselves. They've been unfaithful to, to the covenant. They have been an abomination before the presence of the living God. So cast them out, Adonai. But before the accuser can launch into his speech, the unfolding drama takes a very surprising turn in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from a fire? Now the accuser actually has walked into a trap. The Lord turns the tables on the accuser, and the accuser is now the one on trial in the presence of the heavenly host and in front of the high priests. For Satan has failed to see the Lord's part in the covenant. He's seen very well all of the failures, but he hasn't seen the faithful, unbreaking love of the living God who has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord personally rescued Israel from the very exile that he sent them into as a brand plucked from a fire, like a burning charred piece of wood that is almost ready to be completely turned to ash. He picks it up with his own hand, rescues it, and is bound to rehabilitate this brand, this charred nation, and revive it and bring their dry bones back to life. And in his myopic, small-minded, accusatory nastiness, the accuser can't see that because he's only focused on failure. He can't see the graciousness of God. The Lord chose Jerusalem. The Lord loves Jerusalem. And the Lord loves Jerusalem because he chose Jerusalem. How dare you accuse someone I love? How dare you accuse someone that I chose? You should hang by your own gallows, accuser. Shut your mouth. Some theologians like to picture our salvation. They call it a golden chain. And every link has value in this golden chain. God chose us. God forgave us. God fills us with his spirit. Oh, God will redeem us. God will glorify us at the end of history. And it just hangs together. It's beautiful and it's strong. And it's held together by the living God. An accusation can't tear it apart. The old British theologian Charles Spurgeon, theologian and preacher, says this. Christ meets Satan with a mysterious truth which was settled before the world was. He throws, as it were, this chain into his teeth and bids him champ that till he breaks his teeth. Joshua's enemy is silenced. We no longer hear from him. He's too busy champing down on the golden chain. Have you ever found yourself, I don't know, not in the right outfit, underdressed, overdressed, kind of embarrassed? You're sort of like, conspicuous in the environment you're in, the restaurant you came to, the party you went to, it's really humiliating. You feel conspicuous, you feel foolish. Now as high priest, Joshua's proper attire was the robes described in the book of Exodus that God had specifically designed for him to wear. Yet what happens is that Joshua's internal condition and the internal spiritual condition of the nation became his outfit. Um, verse three says this, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the, this word for filthy real, uh, here is like, as, it's like pollution. It's like excrement. It's disgusting. He is a dis his clothes make him disgusting in the presence of a holy God. And, uh, and he became conspicuous. His clothes became the center of everyone's attention, including Zacharias. Now here's filthy Joshua. And he's standing face to face with, with, uh, with the Lord himself, sometimes described as the angel of the Lord and sometimes described as the Lord himself. But nevertheless, he's in the, he's in the presence 
of the living God. And he doesn't belong there. His clothes are out of line. Now, there's good reason to believe that this angel, this this angel of the Lord, sometimes referred to as the Lord himself, is the Lord Jesus himself. And the reason is um, because of the gracious words that we read about in um, in verse 4. It just sounds so much like the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It just sounds so much like Jesus. In any case, we can, we can look at this verse. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, to Joshua, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a gracious word? And then Zechariah, he's watching the vision, but Zechariah's like, hey, I'm going to be taking part in this too. And Zechariah's like, hey, put a clean turban on his head. And so the angel's like, okay, we'll do it. We'll put a clean turban on his head. And the angel of the Lord is standing by watching it all happen. So the attending angels, they remove Joshua's rags. They clothe him in pure vestments. They make him um, dressed for the occasion. And all that Joshua needed to please God was given to him by God himself. Um, maybe you will have a friend that helps you dress just for the right occasion. They, they're really good at picking out outfits. They're really good um, at just, just the right uh, piece of clothing. And, and I have to say that as you read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I'm just struck by the fact that the Lord has a knack for clothing his people in the perfect outfit. He takes their bedraggled, ill-fitting garments away from them, and then he gives them something better to wear. You see him clothing Adam and Eve in garments that covered them as they left Eden. You see him arranging for Aaron and the Levitical priests to be clothed in royal splendor. You hear God in Deuteronomy promising to show his love for the widow and orphan by literally clothing them. When Israel was spiritually naked, God said this to them from the prophet Ezekiel. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of, um, of skin on your feet and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. When we're facing a battle, what does God put upon us? He puts upon us the armor of God. At the end of history, what do we see when Jerusalem is coming down from, uh, from heaven? It's, uh, she's adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. The Lord is like that father in the prodigal son story who, uh, who takes the, the bedraggled clothes of the younger son when he comes and he's like, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. That's the Lord's heart for us. And not just for our physical appearance, although he does care about that too, but he cares most of all about clothing our souls. When we're ashamed, when we are underdressed personally, spiritually for his presence, he clothes us in his righteousness. He clothes us in his mercy. He clothes us in his glory. At the end of history, we will be wearing the clothes of the glory of Christ forever. In an instant, Joshua's worst day became his best day like that. And it happened because of the mercy of God. His condemnation becomes his coronation. By sheer act of grace, the Lord reverses accusation into honor. He silenced the accuser. He exchanged his garments and he removed Joshua's iniquity. And this was all by grace. Thanks be to God.
And now there's a shift here because the Lord is going to give a solemn charge to Joshua and it's going to move to like a mercy received to responsibility given. And we can read in um, verses six and seven about what the charge is going to be. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus the Lord of, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Here is a new beginning for Joshua's life and ministry. It's a new season of promise and renewal. Walk in my ways. This is Joshua setting the example of actually obeying God's commands in his own personal life. But then there's keep my charge, which is like fulfilling his priestly duties, doing his job, performing the rituals given to Israel. The angel of the Lord cleanses and clothes Joshua, but notice that he does not coddle Joshua. He doesn't take responsibility away from him. He restores it. He calls up Joshua to his God-given capacity to obey. And he gives him a solemn charge. If you walk in my ways and if you keep my charge, then you'll rule over my house, the temple. And he'll have the right of access among those who are standing here. That's the heavenly host. And so Joshua can now enter into the throne room of God anytime he needs to, to receive grace and mercy in a time of need. Now, this is, I think, an important turning point in Joshua's life, a very important turning point in his life and ministry. I mean, have you ever experienced the difference between someone who's, um, who's been marked by the grace of God and someone who only knows the rules? It's such a difference, isn't it? And Joshua here has been through a profound like death and resurrection experience. He has seen his sin for, in all of its ugliness. He's seen his shortcomings and his, his failures and, and, all, and just how capable he is of falling short. But he's also seen something even more important, which was God's lavish grace, God's capacity to absolutely resurrect a human life and a human vocation. When you were at your bottom, it was like, the grace of God flowed all the way down to the lowest parts of Joshua's soul and life. And he's going to emerge here keeping God's ways and keeping God's charge in a way that it's going to be, I believe, marked by mercy and patience and grace for people that others would push aside, that others would reject, that others would condemn because he himself has experienced so much mercy and so much grace. I believe that this was a turning point for him. It's safe to say that Joshua, on the other end of this event, that Joshua the high priest knows the gospel, that the Lord saves, that the Lord is merciful, that the Lord silences the accuser, that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in mercy, that the Lord turns what is our worst moment into our best moment by his mercy and grace. These kinds of experiences just tend to tenderize the heart. These kinds of experiences uh, tend to make us a spring of living water of grace for other people. That we actually, in fact, are drawn to people who are in a hard spot rather than pushing them away. In fact, Joshua would be a sign. He was going to be like a three-dimensional sign of God's grace. Um, the Lord says to him in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, these are his fellow priests that work for him, for they, are, for they are men who are a sign. 
Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So before we get to the branch and everything to follow, Joshua and his friends are going to be a, uh, a it, they were a sign of the nation's sin. Now they're going to be a sign of the grace of the Lord to restore and redeem. Anyone who turns to the Lord, it's not just Joshua who gets this. It's not just his colleagues. It's going to be everyone that they minister to and every life that they touch. Um, but the Lord promises to send a branch. This is a, a, a shoot, someone who is going to be a living representative of the line of David. But there's another sign that the Lord refers to, and that is a very unique um, kind of strange stone. Verse nine, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its, its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. It appears that the Lord has plunked a large stone, what many commentators believe, a large stone right before Joshua. In the middle of this moment, a huge stone is plunked before Joshua. And it's unique. It's like a weight-bearing stone that's really strong and sturdy. But it has eyes. It has seven eyes. And so it's like, it's like a living stone. There's something alive about this stone. And then the final thing is the inscription. There's an inscription on the stone that the Lord puts upon it. And then somehow all of this adds up to the iniquity of the whole land being removed in a single day. Just like it was for Joshua. There's a day coming when it's going to happen for everybody else. Here, I believe, as I've studied and looked at this, is a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus. He's the cornerstone upon which we are built into a living temple. He's also endowed with the Holy Spirit and sees with the seven eyes of the Spirit to the depth of our condition, as well as the purposes of God in history. And his hands, his feet, and his side are engraved with the love of God as he was pierced for our iniquities and crushed um, for our transgressions. Because of Jesus, our worst day became our best day, like that, because of God's mercy. Jesus was stripped naked and clothed with shame so that we could be robed in righteousness. He was condemned so that we could be declared righteous. He did remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And so I love the, the, the promise that caps off this vision, a promise for Joshua, for his colleagues, and for all of the people of God. In verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now in the ancient world, vine and fig tree was akin to the front porch uh, or like backyard patio, a living room, favorite hangout. It's kind of like a space where you can just like, you know, I can relax here. I belong here. People know my name here. It's a space where you are at rest. It's a space where you belong. So what is the Lord saying? He's saying, now that God has shown his great mercy to us, we are at peace. No longer are we like a hair trigger away from being pushed out or rejected by God or each other. We live under the shade of the vine and the fig tree. The cross of Christ is our vine. The cross of Christ is our fig tree. He offers the shade of mercy from condemnation 
He offers rest for the weary under this vine and fig tree. Um, He offers us peace, belonging, comfort. And in the house of God, we offer invitation to our neighbor to take shelter with us under the vine and fig tree of the cross of Christ. This week, I read a study about a sudden rise in what is called deaths of despair. People in our society are literally dying from personal despair. And this is expressed through overdoses, suicides, and then health issues from alcoholism. This study found something very interesting is that people who had experienced one of these deaths of despair, do you know what? Were likely to have no church home. That was one highly correlated factor in their death of despair. They had no church home to belong to. They had no vine to sit under. They had no fig tree to sit under. They had no place to experience hope, forgiveness, and the grace of God in Christ. They had no church family made up of forgiven and forgiving people. Look, um, okay, this is a tough world to belong to, right? Most of our love is conditional love, right? There's rejection everywhere. I mean, almost everywhere you look, there's rejection. One minute you're in because of your money, status, talent, wit. The next minute, you are out because you're starting to slip and the group decided that you don't belong anymore, right? There's so many rejections. There are so few fig trees, precious few. There's so many places to be evaluated and so few places to belong. There's so few places where there's like an open seat on the front porch with an invitation, hey, come and join us, you belong here. So few open seats in back porch uh, patios of saying, hey, come join us, you belong here. Come hang out with us. Along with Joshua and his friends, you and I are signs. We're signs, living signs of God's grace, living signs that there's hope. In a world of endless breakups, rejections, and firings, let's be the community that invites and includes and heals. Imagine if this next season for our church is just, you know, a season of invitations of come and belong and come and sit under the vine and fig tree. Invitations um, to our coworkers out to lunch, to um, a mom in our neighborhood to join the play date or the mom's group. Invitations to, to church on Sunday or to our city group if there's room. Um, uh, to, to our table or just to our life, to our front porch, to our back patio. Let's share how good God's grace is, how it's touched the lowest places of our life, how he's included us in his family, how he's taken the pressure off of us while placing his glory upon us. Um, I love Jesus's words, all that the Father draws to me, I will in no wise cast out. He won't cast you out when you come to him. And all who come under the shade of this tree will never be cast out. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.